the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is indeed Elna Schutz and for one hour every single week we get a little bit nerdy with the science inside here on VARFM and of course on podcast or streaming around the world on VARFM.coza. And today it's quite a serious story in the headlines that I'm sure you've seen that has got us thinking. The Seven Angels Church in the town in South Africa of Nkobo has been at the center of quite a lot of controversy. Its practices have been called inhumane. The church is said to be a religious cult. There's been quite a lot of violence and several people who have died in shootouts. And the church leaders face charges of sexual sexual exploitation, rape and sexual grooming, among a lot of other things happening around the story. So, of course, it is quite a hectic one when it comes to the news side of things. But it did get us thinking. Horrible things like this do happen. And thankfully, there are not too many. It is far and few between. But the truth is, and this is a truth that is applicable to more of us than just the ones who are involved in such a hectic news story, is beliefs and believing others can be incredibly powerful regardless of who you are. And I'm not just talking about religion. It might be political beliefs or environmental beliefs or something that somebody once said to you when you were five years old and to this day you believe that goldfish fart. I don't know what it might be, but things that get stuck in our minds can be incredibly powerful. So to illustrate this, we kick off the show today with a story of a woman who was in quite an incredible situation but believing turned out to not be the best choice so it was early in the morning and i decided to go to the library and as i was walking down the street i meet up with this old man and he's like hi can i ask you a question i'm like no it's fine i I need directions directions to where and he said some random crutch name and i was like okay i don't really know the place but maybe you can ask people and then this other young man came. I didn't know they were working together, but it happened that they worked together. So he's like, okay, I'm afraid to ask. Can you please ask the gentleman? And I'm like, hi, do you know this and that daycare? And this guy's like, no, I don't know it. So we sat there and he asked if I'm in a rush. I'm like, not really, but I'm going to the library. And then he starts praying and he says, okay, can I have five minutes of your time, both me and that guy? He started prophesying over my life. So he says to me, do you have a headache problem? I'm like, yeah, I do. And he told me about the passing of my mom. And I didn't know how he knew that my mom passed. But I think these people, they target people who are vulnerable. They just bought you from a distance where this person is in need. And then he started also prophesying over that guy's life. And that guy like made it so believable. But then as I said with that guy, that man asked for five minutes of prayer and he went that side. But then this guy kept asking me questions. So where's your dad? I'm like, no, my father also passed away. Kanti, they are communicating with WhatsApp. So whatever that I was telling this guy, this guy was telling to that old man. And when he came, everything that I told that guy, it's like that guy asked me questions and I was like, okay, so Wena, who are you? And that guy also told me his story. So when that old man came, he told us everything. So because I trusted this guy and I thought, okay, this old man doesn't know both of us. Probably this is true. And he asked if I believe in God. I was like, yeah, I do. And he prayed. He asked if I have a phone. I was like, yeah. And what's in that bag? I was like, no, it's my laptop because I was going to study when I get to the library. He asked if I have money and I said no. So he said can I pray for you? I said no it's fine it's not a problem. And he started praying and he also prayed for this guy. So he said to this guy can you please give this lady your phone and then go there and pray for two minutes. And that guy went and prayed. So when he came back what they were doing they were trying to get that trust in me to regain that. After he also said, give this guy your belongings, your phone and your laptop and go there and pray. And I went there, I prayed. And then when I looked, both of them, they were not there. 
and that's when I realized I've been scammed. It was so hard for me to believe because at that time, I couldn't see anything. I was not myself. I realized like five minutes later, they were fooling me. I was not aware. Like in my mind, I was like, oh my God. So God works in mysterious ways for someone to come from Limpopo, but to know me that deep and to know what I've been through and to know everything about me. It was like a miracle. I just thought to myself, God, thank you for bringing these people because these people are going to help me. I've been beating myself up. Like, I still don't believe that it happened because I ask myself day in and day out, like in my rightful mind, how can I give people that I don't know my belongings? I can't sleep. I can't do anything. When I sleep, I think of these people. I see them in my dreams. I see them everywhere. I can't cope. I think they used God's name and that made me trust them. And again, he was an older person. They used God's name and it made me trust them is what our opening story of the show says tonight. And it is just one example. Of course, not everyone who believes in a certain uh, strong belief or religion is scammed or harmed by it in, in any way. Rather, the opposite often. But the scientific truth behind this does remain that beliefs are very powerful psychologically. And that is the take on it that we're taking today. Um, in our main story, we will look at the psychology of belief believing something like a religion later in the show it's of course our unscience feature where we go on a little trip into a black hole and then later we look at the scientist behind the science with valentine sasser who is finding new ways to diagnose and monitor cancer and diabetes very fascinating research work there that we'll um, find out a bit more about later and then we end off the show with our march mammal madness feature if you haven't heard of this it's kind of like a fantasy football but with animals fighting you can even play along so listen to us at the end of the hour and then you will find out a little bit more about how to play along and pick your favorite animal it's all on the science inside which just so happens to be our name on Facebook, or you can tweet us at VAFM, hashtag Science Inside. Let us know what you think about any of these uh, topics that we'll be discussing today or maybe have a question for us. The WhatsApp line, as every single week, is 084-078-4912. You can WhatsApp voice note us there. But let's kick off the show as we always do with our news. As always, I'm joined by my producer, Bridget Lepeja, here in studio to go through some of the things that are happening in the world of science that we think you listeners should all know about. Hi, Bridget. Hey, Elna. How are you? Good, good. And you? I'm awesome. What's new on your side? Well, today we're talking about that concept, the Big Bang Theory. Mm, and I'm guessing you're not talking about the popular sitcom. No, definitely not. We're talking about the universe, evolution, all that kind of stuff. Okay, so today's story, Elna. Uh, today's news story goes all the way back in time. Can you take a guess how many years back in time are we traveling tonight? Let's say a million. Close, but not quite. Today's story dates back to approximately 14 billion years ago, or even before time even began. That doesn't make too much sense, Bridget. How are we going to a time before time began? <laughs> how, how is that even possible? Well, that is what we attempt to unpack today. Tonight, we talk about what happened before the Big Bang Theory. Do you perhaps have any idea what the Big Bang Theory is? So it's something that everybody kind of thinks they know. But as far as I know, it's a scientific theory, of course, that explains how the entire universe began. Where did it all come from? From the stars, the planets, other galaxies, even our tiny little planet Earth. Exactly, Elna. And this theory states that the universe began as a very hot but small and dense superforce with no stars, no atoms, form or structure. Then about approximately 14 billion years ago, the space expanded very quickly like an explosion, leading to the formation of the entire universe as you know it. Hence the name Big Bang Theory. Okay. I get you. Yeah. 
My new story tonight comes from the renowned physis- physicist Stephen Hawking, who recently made headlines once more for attempting to answer one of the biggest questions in science. What happened before the Big Bang Theory? Okay. In an interview on National Geographic Star Trek, uh, Star Talk, I mean, uh, he tells physicist Neil deGrasse Tyson that the boundary condition of the universe is that it has no boundary. Okay. Again, you are saying things that sound incredibly smart, but you're going to just have to simplify it for us normal folk. Well, simply put, he says that there is no time before time began, as time has always been there. (laughs) (laughs) You think you're making it better. (laughs) But it sounds like very much a chicken and egg theory. You know, what came first? first. Is he implying that before there was nothing, there was time? But then where did time come from? (laughs) Okay, listen, I know this all may sound very confusing, but according, according to lifescience.com, he further elaborated that the subatomic ball of everything is known as singularity. This means that if the humans were to rewind back in time, the universe would shrink down to a single atom known as singularity. Okay. Inside this extremely small atom of heat and energy, the laws of the the laws of physics and time as we know them cease to exist put in another way time as we understand it literally did not exist before the universe started to expand so rather the arrow of time shrinks in infinitely as the universe becomes smaller and smaller but never ever reaching a clear point okay so stephen hawking says that before the big bang theory time was bent it was always reaching closer to nothing, but didn't become anything. There was never a Big Bang Theory that produced something from nothing. It just seemed that way from human, humankind, uh, human, the human mind's perspective. Okay, that does make some sense. Because if you imagine, like you're saying, an arrow that shrinks down to smaller and smaller and smaller, it might seem to us as if something started, but really it just became infinitely smaller but never reached zero. Makes a little bit of sense. Still very big concept, even for us on the science and science, mm-hmm. but it does clarify it a little bit for me. And as I continue, in a lecture on the no boundary proposal, Hawking also stated that events before the Big Bang Theory are simply not defined because there was no way one could possibly measure what happened then. And since events before the Big Bang Theory have no observational consequences, one one might as well just cut them out of the Big Bang Theory and just say that time began as the Big Bang Theory. Okay, so as the Big Bang happened, that's when it all um, when it all started, so to say, even though he's acknowledging it's not that way, it just helps us to think that Precisely. way. Precisely. Okay. All of this makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I do. I, I think it, it, how can you create nothing from nothing? <laughs> <laughs> but the, the thing is, it's easy for us who have heard these kind of theories for many years to think that they have always been like this and will always be. But of course, over thousands of years, our views as humans about these very big questions have changed. So every time we find out something new, you never know. In 200 years, people could be laughing at us for what we believed. True. Very interesting. But uh, in my story, I am going a lot closer to home in fact right into the kitchen or rather where the things in the kitchen come from so we know that plants do need quite a bit of water but in turn they produce food and beneficial gases such as oxygen which we of course need but it's possible that some plants need more water than they or they draw more water than they actually need it's almost like they're being a little bit Greedy. And we now know this because of researchers at the Carl R. Wusser Institute for Genomic Biology. And they have genetically modified plants that change this whole thing. When water is limited, these modified plants will grow faster and yield more products, even though they have less water. Which sounds pretty cool. 
Okay, so how do they conserve water? That is, of course, the big question. Mm -hmm. And these plants are able to conserve water because they have an increased level, of course, through the genetic modification of photosynthetic protein. And I'm sure we all remember from like fifth grade biology around photosynthesis being very important for plants to grow. Oh, but then you'd have to explain a bit more in detail yeah. for me to understand. <laughs> you knew about the stars a few minutes ago. <laughs> now I have to explain about a plant. <laughs> so the important thing here is something called a stomata, which is tiny openings in the surface of plants that are kind of like gatekeepers. When they open, carbon dioxide enters the plant to make photosynthesis possible. However, water is allowed to escape obviously through transpiration. So, in general, we do know the carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere have increased due to global warming, of course. So, this means the plant can use enough of the of this gas without fully opening their stomata because they don't need to fully open it to get more of it. So, by genetically increasing the plant's photosynthetic synthetic protein, The plants now send out a signal to the light receptors that there is not enough light energy to photosynthesize. Receptors would respond by sending out another signal to the stomata, causing causing it to close since the carbon dioxide is no longer needed um, for facilitating the photosynthesis. Wow, okay, so, but now how is this a two-way solution? So this basically means that the crop can be more productive during periods of drought and it will help make other water resources more available. Um, For that whole time that we would be watering the plants, we now don't need to water it as much, which of course is wonderful, especially in places like the Western Cape where we need more water. True. And South Africa does use quite a few genetically modified organisms and we already eat quite a lot of genetically modified food, a lot of us. So it's not like this is a crazy out there thing, but it is incredible that by changing just one gene, these researchers can actually really change how much water these plants are using while still being very productive. Oh, so it's sort of like a solution for those, you know, um, alien plants that they they talk about, that they consume too much of water, so they just cut them down. But, you know, I just feel so sorry for them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a lot of the alien plants we can't eat. (laughs) Unless you want to start an alien plant diet, maybe maybe Cape Townians will be thankful for you eating. (laughs) Shouldn't we be all accommodating of one another and just grow and flourish type of thing? (laughs) So that was our science news on the science and science. Stay with us because next up we speak to a psychologist who specializes in religion about uh, beliefs and how they can influence us. This is the Science Inside with Elma. Hello and welcome back to the show. We're going to just keep the religion topic for a second switch things around uh, because we can't reach everybody that we need to reach so for now i'm going to jump into what i think is one of the most fun features on the show it's called and science and it's where we look at the stranger side of research if you think scientists are the people who have their lives together then this might just This might just uh, convince you otherwise. It's where we look at the weird and wonderful side of what scientists spend a lot of time, effort and even money on. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. So today on Unscience, I need you to do a little bit of a thought exercise with me. Imagine for a minute that you're something out in space. Maybe you're some old moon rocks or bits of a star or even a discarded bit of a space rocket. You're just floating around. You don't have too many cares. I mean, not even gravity affects you. And the next thing you know, you fall into a black hole to never be seen or heard of again. It's a bit of a strange thought exercise, I know. But that is the fate, actually, of quite a few materials in space right now. They're just doing the things they needed to do and before you know it they are in a black hole 
and you thought you had some real life problems. Matter is out here worrying about what actually matters. Jokes aside, I promise I won't make more ridiculous puns. You have probably heard of a black hole before. It's a region in space with gravitational fields so intense that nothing can escape it. Not, Not even light can escape the black hole, which is, of course, why it is so dark. Everything around a black hole falls right into it and... It just sort of falls in. So I know a lot of us have this idea that there's a sucking sort of gravity that sort of sucks things in, but that actually isn't the case. What is pretty cool is that these mystical bodies, so to say, were predicted by, of course, Albert Einstein in 1916 with his general theory of relativity. And this was long before they were actually discovered. Now, general relativity suggests that gravity is not a force, as Sir Isaac Newton said, but that it is a distortion of space and time. So I know you might be thinking, is all all that I learned in high school science really a lie, Elna? Was gravity just just a joke? It does seem so. Uh, I am joking, of course, but back to the black holes. They were first discovered in 1971, and no specific astronomer was recognized for this discovery, so we didn't call it the Martin black hole or whatever it might be. But John Wheeler, an American astronomer, is recognized, however, for the name black hole, which he came up with before the discovery was even made. And not all black holes are made equally. I do have to explain that. Because there are different types. There's stellar black holes, supermassive black holes, and intermediate black holes. Those three types exist. So it's almost like there's a spectrum. And they do form in different ways. So a stellar black hole forms when large stars explode and leave behind a black hole with a mass of just a few suns. A supermassive black hole actually forms in ways that we don't quite understand yet. We're not sure where they come from, but they do exist at the heart of galaxies. And normally, these holes have the mass of millions of stars. And then the third one, the intermediate black holes, form when a group of stars collide in a chain reaction. This then means that supermassive black holes are the heaviest, then intermediate black holes, and then stellar black holes are the least heaviest. But I don't want you to get confused by the mass of the black hole and think you can relate it to the size, that it's now this giant gap in the universe. Because black holes actually don't cover large areas, even though they are relatively heavy. So I know this sounds very weird. How can they be large and small at the same time? Well, that is actually what it is because they have such heavy weight that the gravitational force inside them causes the matter that is accumulating inside to form a high-density ball, if I can call it that. It is the relationship between mass and gravity that makes this whole idea quite confusing. So you might be asking, Alna, that's a lot of science, but what what does this look like? I mean, we can't even really imagine this apart from it just being a black space. So let me explain it like this. If you were to just leisurely stroll around space, you yourself as a human obviously wouldn't survive because gravity would stretch you out like out like spaghetti and your death would come very quickly. But let's just say hypothetically that you do survive. So, as you're walking towards the black hole, it would look like a solid mass of blackness in the middle of space, and its surrounding stars and planets would look distorted. This is because black holes distort space and time. So, time would actually go slower. So, you could see your watch running slower, but you would feel the same. Then you'll reach the point of no return, which is essentially the second layer of a black hole, and it's called the event horizon. And this event horizon will then burn you to death, unfortunately. But let's just say you don't burn to death and you were able to see this. The inside of the black hole is where all this accumulated mass is in a single point in space-time. And I'm sorry to disappoint you, but it would just be a big black ball of all the accumulated matter 
that's all. Just a black ball. So it sounds ridiculous, but that's how it works. But most likely, obviously, you would never be able to see that. But I hope you have a better idea now of how it works. And this is how we know that gravity is kind of a lie. Um, And it seems like black holes, kind of just black balls in space, all a little bit funny. But I hope you have a better understanding now of what black holes are. Unusual and likely unscience unusual unlikely unscience you're listening to the science inside bringing you science around major news events Hello and welcome back to the show. My name is Elna Schutz. Now we go into our main story. As we were saying earlier, it is fascinating how beliefs, whether that is in religion or any other uh, concept that highly fascinates you and really seems to take up a large part of your life, it can really affect you beyond what you might think. So we now go to Dr. Karen van der Maave from Northwest University. She's she's a psychologist who specializes in religion and is here to speak uh, to us about it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Eleanor. So let's get into this whole concept. We are, of course, not talking... Um, about any specific religion, but mm. rather in a in a broader sense, how these beliefs can influence us. Can you perhaps start us off by explaining how does a belief function psychologically if I am deeply convinced of something? Right, right. Um, uh, would it be okay if I start with what religion is and what function it it fulfills because it 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 focuses on a basic need that all human beings have and that is that we all are spiritual beings and we attach to ideas and experiences that we do believe are are of of a higher order or either related to the divine or to um, overarching ideas. And those beliefs and um, attachments that we form really guide us in what we do and what we, how we behave and what we choose to do. So um, in terms of religion, one would say that there are various religions and their function is to guide us in terms of how to connect to the divine, which is uh, the divine is uh, defined differently in different religions, but the religions provide us a, a path teachings, rituals, etc., that we believe can help us understand and connect to the divine more, more easily. So if we ask what, are the, what, what function does a religion fulfill on a psychological level, I think we could at least um, identify three. Uh, one would be that we have a basic psychological need for safety and security. Mm. Um, we, we want to be attached to something that is bigger than ourselves. And a religion does provide them that. Then on a social level, we have various relationship needs. We want to be part of a group. We want to be part of a family or a bigger religious group or a bigger group of people that have similar beliefs and values. And the third one, I think, would be a need for meaning. We do need to feel that everything makes sense. And that, that, the, that there is a way of finding meaning in life that might be very challenging. And religions do provide such a framework of meaning for uh, the followers. Mm. So uh, on, a, on a psychological level, religion is very important for us. And 
religions are not necessarily just the world religions. Um, uh, there can be other belief systems that also fulfill that function. And of course, many people uh, do not ascribe to a organized religion, but do have very strong beliefs. Exactly. And, you know, maybe one can look in terms of then talking of a, a worldview, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a way of understanding the world, uh, one's place in the world and one's um, uh, value system and assumptions about what is uh, expected of you as a human being, mm. you know, and that that is much influenced by your culture, your bringing up, your experiences in the world, what you have learned, and obviously also if you are a religious person, it is influenced by your religion as well. So, what I hear from what you're saying that. Um a belief in a specific religion fulfills these needs that we all have. Does that mean um, that you're saying that really there aren't any fundamental psychological differences between people who choose to ascribe to uh, a certain religion and those who decide to not be religious? I think we all have the same psychological needs. Uh, but we choose to fulfill them differently. Okay, that does make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, earlier on the show, we were talking uh, about the very sad and tragic um, situation around the so-called cult happening in mm. in Robo, in South mm. Africa. And it does, um, of course, we do not at all want to equate that to um, other very healthy uh, systems of belief or or people might feel they are very healthy Um, so where do we draw the line psychologically speaking about something that is healthy and seen as beneficial and something that's damaging both to the the person believing it and those around them Mm -hmm. that really is an interesting question because uh, it is you know we have subjective ways of viewing things so um, uh, people can become very much involved in, say, religious groups that seem to have a lot of meaning for them. But if you look at it from the outside, there are various characteristics that can indicate that they are not as healthy as they should be. So perhaps we could have a look at some of those or chat about some of those characteristics of uh, maybe an unhealthy religious organization. Is that okay? Yes, go for it. Okay, so let's have a look. One would uh, be able, I think, to identify a leader or a group of leaders that claim that they have supernatural powers or insights or that God has spoken to them and specifically or specially called them um, to bring messages to followers, etc. So it's a, it's a leader or one or two or a group of leaders who, who really claim to be special. And um, then they, 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 they bring this message, they convince people, we'll talk about the convincing later, but characteristic of these leaders is they really want people to be loyal to them above all else. So they want loyalty at any cost. And often even over um, what that person might believe themselves, it's very much focused on that leader is what I'm hearing. Exactly. It is so. And it might even entail, and many times it does entail, isolating this follower from other relationships like family relationship or um, friendship groups and, and just sucking this person into that group to, to, um, to establish a very high degree of control over that person. Mm. So the person might um, uh, give this group all his or her own money uh, or uh, work towards the, 
the good of the leader and the group at the expense of own family members. Mm. So uh, there is a lot of control in such a group right. and a lot of manipulation. People are coerced to do things that they normally would not do. And they are exploited. And as we see, also abused. You know, young girls are used as as um, as uh, sexual objects, etc., to the for the for the leader to fulfil his needs. Mm. Okay, so uh, we've spoken about this isolation from family and friends. So the family unit is dishonoured, even if the whole family becomes part of this group. The, the group is more important than the family unit. Mm. And this is, I think, what we've seen in so many of these so-called cult cases, where yes. there's definitely isolation. Um, Dr. Mandamaba, unfortunately, we are running out of time. Mm-hmm. So I want to just ask you a last question that came in from, from a listener, um, asking... What does it do or mean psychologically when you feel you have lost your religion? Mm, that is a that is an interesting thing. Some uh, many times, if one feels you have this this um, experience of losing religion, I equate it in the sense to an existential vacuum. You know, you are confronted with a place, you feel you are in a place where everything that was believed, that was true for you at a certain period, in a certain period of, of your life, is now questionable. And in a sense, that is not such a bad place to be. It's, it's frightening, but it's, it's a push towards more questioning more searching, perhaps a higher order understanding that you create for yourself. So, yes, I think many people uh, experience that. I think in many of the mystical, spiritual literature, they talk about the dark night of the soul. And it is, it is quite well documented. Um, Right, that's right, yeah. what I would like to say about it. <laughs> yeah, that, that does make sense, just answering a listener question yes. coming in there. We've been yes. speaking to Dr. Karen van der Mava, who is a psychologist at the Northwest University, specializing in religion. And I think we really just scratched the surface of this topic, but what... I definitely want to leave our listeners with is just how deep the need and and the the then effect of beliefs can be in our life. Thank you so Absolutely. much for speaking to us. And thank you very much for having me, Alna. I wish you the best. Same, same to you. Stay with us on the Science Inside. Listen to the Science Inside podcast on www.journalism.co.za. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Welcome back to the show with the last little bit of our hour. We now look at a scientist behind the science. Today we're speaking to Valentine Sasa. She is a PhD candidate in material science and manufacturing at the CSIR. And her work focuses on the detection and monitoring of diseases like diabetes mellitus, which we know is a significant problem in South Africa. I can name a list of people in my life suffering of diabetes. I'm sure so can you. And her work over the years has focused on various things within this field, such as her master's work at the University of Johannesburg, which looked at a breathalyzer that can allow diabetic patients to check their glucose levels without using needles every day. Among other achievements, she was awarded a DST fellowship for her doctoral degree at the 2017 South African Women in Science Awards, which is a big thing to be proud of. And she also has an interest in science communication and founded an NGO called Capricorn Educational Research Center, which focuses on science communication specifically in rural areas. So thank you, Valentine, for joining us on the show tonight. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me.
as I mentioned, you've been working in the field of diabetes for quite a while. Why have you devoted your research focus to this particular disease? Mm, as we all know that diabetes mellitus is a hereditary disease, meaning uh, it can pass from one generation to uh, to another. So my dad was diabetic and his and his uh, siblings were also diabetic. My my grandparents also died from diabetes. So I I wanted to fully understand the the diabetic so so that I can help my family with any solution. And because I also have a great chances of being diabetic and also my children also have uh, chances of being diabetic. Mm. And so often we see this, that truly dedicated scientists aren't divorced from their work. It's not just a theory to them, but it's very close to your heart and, as you're saying, to your family. So mm. currently your work is around new methods of diagnosing and monitoring not only diabetes, but other di- diseases like cancer using nanomaterials. Um, why is this so necessary and how far along the process are you? Mm, the new method that we are currently uh, developing it's especially for for diabetic because on my PhD I'm focusing on the, on diabetic as well. So it's quite uh, it's non non invasive, meaning you don't need to drink or use any blood. So we only use uh, blood samples, and then it's also uh, inex- inexpensive as compared to the current traditional method that is currently being used which is quite expensive and then which needs uh, disposable needles and strips which cost about 200 rand and they can only last for 20 days. Mm. And then as we all know that as the diabetic patient, you need to monitor your disease like uh, three times a day so that you can control your sugar level. So having to have this kind of expensive device to to monitor your disease, it's it's a really it's really boring, especially in South Africa, whereby even people from disadvantaged uh, backgrounds are diabetic. So with the current one that we are trying to develop, it can also it can help even those who are uh, financially disadvantaged, and then it's pain free, and then it also uh, minimizes the chances of. Uh, blood cross contamination, as with the current one, there might be a blood cross contamination because you are pricking yourself. Yes, that makes sense. So it sounds like it would solve so many problems for mm-hmm. people who are diabetic around the country. How yes. far along the process are you? Is there hope at the end of the tunnel? Yes, yes, there's there's, there's hope. Uh, currently, we are we are. We are testing the, the the devices that we have. We are doing the clinical trials, and then we, I, during my master's uh, project, I also did some clinical tri- trials on the devices, and then used the current the current uh, device that is used to monitor the disease, and then try to check the correlation between the new developed uh, nano device with the current one so it gave us a good uh, correlation and it's promising that sounds excellent so does that mean that if you were able to roll this out cheaply that diabetic people around the country would be able to use a breathalyzer to check their their levels yes yes i think uh, most people would also be comfortable in using the breathalyzer to check their uh, blood glucose level, especially mm-hmm. kids who are born diabetic. Uh, they they are not comfortable with the pricking. So actually, everyone everyone is just not comfortable with the pricking, and everyone would love to just uh, blow, and then they they have their blood glucose ready. 
Yeah, it does sound like a, a much more comfortable way of dealing with a disease that isn't going to, you know, be cured or left anytime soon for most people. So, Valentine, just to end off our conversation, we love asking this of our scientists because we, we really want to... Um, connect with you on a wider level what is the one thing that you wish ordinary people like our listeners knew about your field of work why is it so important oh, oh. i wish everyone understood about the like diabetes mellitus is not literally sugar disease meaning doesn't mean that when you eat sugar you will automatically be diabetic so diabetes is uh, it's basically a, more on genetics or metabolism. So it's, it's hereditary if your parents or anyone in your bloodline has diabetes, you probably have diabetes. And then people at least shouldn't stigmatize the disease because people who are diabetic, they don't choose to be diabetic. Yes, it's not just that you ate too many donuts after lunch. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on the science side. We've been speaking to a scientist behind the science, Valentine Sasa from the CSRI, who is working on developing methods to diagnose and monitor diabetes and make it easier for everyone in the country who is suffering uh, this such widespread disease. Keep listening to the show. Next up, it's March Mammal Madness. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Welcome back to the show. My name is Elna Schutz. And for the last couple of minutes, it gets a little bit competitive here in studio because we are joined by uh, Anthony and Michael from the Sports Hub. Yes. Hi, we gentlemen. Are here. How Good are you? evening. They're already looking excited. If you don't know what's happening, this happens once a year. And we in the VARFM studio get very excited. People all over Twitter get excited. And I hope you listening are also just like catching a little bit of, <laughs> of the chias around this. Because March Mammal Madness is like fantasy football, but for nerds. Yes. Animals battle it out. It's one month. And we here at the studio love playing this together and against each other. The Science Inside team against the Sports Hub team. Uh, our team did win last year. No, 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 no. Matt won last year. Not your team. It was just Matt. <laughs> <laughs> he was represented. Presenting the science and okay. but instead of us fighting about who won last time, let's fight about the first fight, which is um, the wild card winner, mm -hmm. um, which is actually happening pretty much right about now in America. It might actually be on Twitter already. I haven't checked, but the two animals that were here were the gold crest, which is a little bird, and the praying mantis. Mm. Yeah, no chance for the praying mantis on yeah. my side. Yeah, I think I went, if I remember correctly, I think I went with the bird. Did you just go by size? No, I went I went by name. I think I said this last week. Yeah. I just chose the one with the coolest sounding name. <laughs> I sort of thought bird, maybe it eats praying mantises at some point. So why not? Let's give it a go. Okay, I also said the gold crisp, but I have to be honest with you guys. There mm. was a very personal vendetta um, involved here because secret time, Ooh. just in front of all yeah, of we our family, we no. won't tell you. <laughs> I am terrified of praying mantises. Is it? So you could, <laughs> you could put me in a room with a snake chilled days mm. put me in a room with don't you look at me like you're going to bring a praying mantis I was going to say Anthony looked up at me with like the wheels turning in his head you will never be allowed in here again I will make sure no but I am legitimately afraid I don't know if it's from my childhood but I um, I absolutely freak out so I chose against it based on the fact that I would like most praying mantises to be eaten yeah okay but I have a question why praying mantises they're so tiny and like skinny 
and but little. But they have evil in their yeah. eyes. I'm afraid of Christmas <laughs> beetles. Like wow, genuinely, guys. I run away from them. Oh, if you bring a praying mantis in here, guess what I'm bringing? Horns <laughs> of Christmas beetles. Let's see. A whole, let's, a whole shoebox full. Let's, let's keep this all theoretical, shall we, and not actually end, end this month with attacking each other. That would be when lovely. When they have to face their fears. <laughs> so the first, the first category that's going for it is great adaptations. We had some, some hippos. There was a platypus um, involved there. Quite a few different things. Any favorites? There was a cheetah. I think I put down a platypus to Obviously. go quite far. Obviously. Uh, Perry the platypus. Yep. Yes, that yep. was my inspiration. They are just um, venomous, Michael. I know. But, or scary in any way. But some part of me wants them to be top secret agents in some <laughs> kind of way yeah. in real life. I agree. I think that's a. I think the the like six year old in me took over when I was choosing that one. Okay, maybe like yeah. fluff fluff the other animals to death, like yeah. you know, hug yeah. them till they or get hit scared. them with their tail because they've got like quite a flat. Ooh. Yeah, and also their bill. Yes. Okay. Well, mm. we'll give you a chance. I've got to say, one of the ones that I, I'm. Um, banking on a little bit is the Kowati Mundi um, which is a very cool animal called a Nazwa Nazwa also there are quite a few in the Johannesburg Zoo if you would like to see oh. one they are very cool they have a ringed tail a cute snout very adorable but they eat brains oh, oh wow. wow that got really dark really wow. quick uh, what I was going to say though is I really think that the cheetah is going to do well my only thing is I don't know defensively if it would be able to stand up to like <laughs> the hippo for example who's also in this it is a pygmy hippo yeah but still though it's a hippo like let's be honest it's a hippo guys <laughs> So that is just a little bit of a snapshot of what we think about March Mammal Madness. If you would like to get involved, this is the one time in the Science Inside where you can be absolutely with us. Or technically you could be on the Sports Hub team, I mean, if you really wanted to. <laughs> but guys aren't excited about that at all. Um, so you can find it all online. The hashtag is hashtag 18MMM. You can find the bracket. You can fill it in. You can send it to us with the hashtag science aside. You can play along with us. So that is March Mammal Madness, and that is how we end off the show. Today, there has been so much on the show, from black holes to the psychology of religion to diabetes detection, a little bit for everyone. And if you missed any of that, it's really easy to find it. It is on journalism.coza forward slash science. Thanks go to all of our guests featured on the show today, and of course, our team behind the scenes. We have production by Bridget Lapera, uh, Harmony Molefi, Lebohang Madisha, and Glory Mabuza, and tech, as always, by Kutlana Sahame. As I said, the podcast is on journalism.coza forward slash science. It's the Science Inside on Facebook and at VowFM on Twitter. The Science Inside is produced by the Vits Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. My name is Elna Schutz, and I will be with you again next week. The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on OSM 88.1. Listen to the Science Inside podcast on www.journalism.co.za.